put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. of Kentucky Deceased, The Hauntings of Frankfurt. If you listened to our first episode, you heard all about how some Frankfurt residents believed that utilizing a Ouija board or talking board, they were able to communicate with the dead and solve a murder that had previously been a closed case. Now, as I said in the first episode, every episode's content is going to be a little bit different. And this is because, well, we're a limited release podcast, so we don't have a lot of time to set up very many stories. And because the community of Frankfurt is so different, we did not want to limit the type of stories we wanted to receive to any one thing. Instead, we wanted to keep it broad and open and available for feedback and input and all sorts of great stuff. If while you're listening to this podcast, you think of some of your own stories that you want to share with us, we here at the Capital City Museum would absolutely love to record them and add them to our collection. So please do not hesitate to contact us. For this first episode this week, what we're going to be doing is kind of a I hesitate to say mishmash, but we're going to be covering a variety of different stories. The first thing that you're going to hear is a newspaper article from the 1960s about a poltergeist out in eastern Kentucky. And I know we're limiting things to Frankfurt, but I honestly thought this story was too interesting to pass up. So I hope you can tolerate the slight digression. Then we're going to hear from a Frankfurt resident about their experiences seeing and feeling the unknown in their own home and the homes of others. And I invite you to consider whether you've ever been in a home that feels like it has a personality. And finally, we have a very special guest, Patty Peevler, who is on the board for the Frankfurt Cemetery, who's going to be chatting with us about some of the deceased Frankfurt residents who are buried up at the cemetery as well as some spooky, odd, and bizarre encounters that have happened up at the cemetery. So I hope you will enjoy this week's episode. I'm going to try and not do too much talking and let you just experience. So please, as always, don't hesitate to write me at ehaskin, H-A-S-K-E-N, at frankfurt.ky.gov, or come into the Capital City Museum. We're at 325 Ann Street. We're open Monday through Saturday from 10 to 4. If you come during the week, it's a pretty good chance you might meet me or our city historian, Beth Shields, or our collections manager, Becky Tippett, or any one of our numerous and wonderful and kind front desk staff. So please never hesitate to come on down. We would love to talk to you and hear your stories. Science, Religion at Odds on Carter County Poltergeist From January 8, 1969 By George Wolford of the Ashland Daily Independent From Olive Hill, Kentucky Science and religion are clashing over methods of ridding a Carter County family of a poltergeist which has strewn destruction through five houses and left family members emotionally distraught. At first, neighbors were dubious of events reported in the John Callahan home on Henderson Branch, for only a few persons, principally family members, could swear they'd seen mysterious movements and the cracking of glass by invisible hands. It was real enough for the Callahans, though, for they cleared out and moved to Zimmerman Hill, a half mile away. 
After two weeks of peace in their new home, it got worse than ever, and witnesses became plentiful. The elderly couple could offer no explanation for the weird occurrence, which included movement of heavy items, such as a refrigerator and chests, smaller items flying through the air, and the appearance of a wraith. A pair of psychical researchers from Durham, North Carolina, associated with Duke University, came and watched for several days, then abruptly left. Before leaving, however, they verified the occurrences and said they were due to PK, a psychical term for an uncontrolled mind over matter. Meanwhile, events seemed to center around a 12-year-old grandson of the family. His mother, a member of Jehovah's Witnesses, follows that church's teaching that such unexplained happenings are the work of demons or wicked spirits. That conflict, apparently, was the reason the two researchers returned to Durham. They retain an interest in the case and have held open an invitation for a program of help based on personal study by a physicist and physician. The youth's father, though, says he does not want to put the boy in a hospital or take him out of school. He has followed other advice of the researchers in keeping the boy emotionally quiet. The occurrences began on November 15th in the Henderson Branch House, where the elder Callahans had lived about two years. Movements were violent that first day, then continued mildly through November 21st. After they moved on November 25th, new occupants found the house peaceful, and things were also quiet on Zimmerman Hill. On December 7th, in the new home, movements again began to occur. The old couple summoned a son, Archie, one of their 16 children, for company. He brought with him two neighbors, and a third came in during the hectic night. After the research duo came on the following weekend, two more nights of violent movement were witnessed. Though the pair kept most of their observations to themselves and would not be committed to the point, others saw that movements coincided with the activity and emotions of the grandson. After his parents withdrew him to isolation in their home, movement went to their house and followed the boy into the homes of two uncles. He appeared unable to rid himself of the effect, even though he is not only unaware of what is going on, but disturbed by the uproar surrounding him. Movements at his home have reportedly been more violent than elsewhere, but on Sunday subsided, the family reported. Described as typical poltergeist phenomena, the happenings at the Callahan's, have been unlike anything known in modern times in this area. I know it's unreasonable. I'm ashamed to tell you this, said Mrs. Callahan, because people who hear me think it's a lie. People who came here don't think we're lying. She was describing the flight of a glass bird across a bedroom early in the history of the first house. That first Friday, the initial jolt was a shocker. With only a few of the family about, glass and mirrors and picture frames began to snap, cracking in similar manners through the house untouched. Lamp globes exploded, as did glass and platter whatnots. A great racket came from within the washing machine, and lamps tilted over to break on the floor. The first bad night on Zimmerman Hill included a manifestation of a pale, thin man. Mrs. Callahan and Archie who said they saw the apparition, were sure it resembled her brother, who died 13 years ago. Heavy chairs overturned, the refrigerator moved, picture frames spun on the wall, and small kitchen items flew around. Tables constantly overturned, dumping all contents, and a broom used to clean up the mess returned itself to the kitchen. This is serious, more serious than anything I'd ever seen in my life, said Mrs. Callahan. Saturday night, it looked like death itself was in this house. When the researchers arrived, the grandson and his father came, invited, to the house. The boy's father doubted what he had heard, but minor movements convinced him. He passed his opinion that a curse existed. At that point, the youth ran through the house, and heavy items moved into his path behind him. 
The two researchers, W.G. Roll and John Stump of the Institute for Psychical Research, left this scientific opinion on the happenings, which they termed typical poltergeist phenomena. In our opinion, these occurrences are not hallucination or imagination. We found no evidence of trickery or fraud. They are not due to such causes as the house settling, faulty wiring, or similar factors. We have come up against the kind of process we have been dealing with in other investigations of this type, which we refer to as psychokinesis, or PK, a mind-over-matter effect. This term refers to an energy that, in all likelihood, everybody possesses. It is similar to other human faculties, but with most of us, operates on a confined scale and is not noticeable. This brings me to a third kind of thing we are not dealing with. Demons, the devil, or spirit entities of any kind. It is a natural and normal faculty or force, which, however, is not under the conscious control of anyone. No one wants or wills these things to happen. Though the researchers, reserved in their statements, would not say what caused them to leave their departure and statements on demonism, coincided with entry of the church doctrine as an influence in the case. Jehovah's Witnesses, an international church with headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, is the only church which holds a belief in imminent danger from evil spirits or demons, according to the church leader at Moorhead, who is responsible for services in Olive Hill. H. Ray Battles, presiding minister, said the church had given the family Bible counsel and advice, quote, but we cannot live another's life. Their recommendations, also based on a record of past research into similar cases, has been for the family to pray out loud, calling to Jehovah, attend church meetings, and spend all possible time reading the Bible and keeping their minds full of good thoughts. We also recommend keeping the family united in these goals, said Mr. Battles, and that they destroy any object recently received. He said he and two other men from his church saw a coffee table in the boys' home rise into the air, flip over, and crash to the floor, breaking its contents. Uh, my name is Sally. Do you want the whole name? Sally Lind Roser McBride McNichol, originally from Louisville. Oh, God. I could write a book. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I'm adopted. And uh, I met my birth mother through the History Center. There was a fellow that does the research for families, and he, and I'd been searching for mine for quite a while, and not for anything other than medical reasons. I think that's another can of worms that I don't want to get into. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they found. He found my my birth mother, and uh, so I went to visit them. They sent me a plane ticket to go to Roanoke. <laughs> we are so much alike. <laughs> uh, she loves loved. She's recently passed, but she loved white lighthouses. So when I went to Key West, I climbed the lighthouse and took pictures of the lighthouse and brought them to her and. She likes teapots, liked teapots, and uh, that's one of the things I throw in pottery because I have a degree in that. And uh, <laughs> we finished each other's sentences. <laughs> and her husband, um, I have six, had six uh, siblings, half siblings. <coughs> But uh, her husband <laughs> wouldn't stay in the same room with us because we irritated him because he, <laughs> he could never get a word in edgewise, and we never finished a full sentence because we finished each other. So that's my, well, I have a lot of political background too. So um, if you want to know that, my uh, f first cousin is married to Senator Keene, who was the past governor of Virginia. Um, uh, let's see, who else am I related to? William Henry Harrison. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, 
I was also one of my ancestors was also the mayor of Louisville before Speed, right before Speed. My father was a physician, ear, nose, and throat otorhinolaryngologist <laughs> in uh, Louisville. And uh, let's see, his family, his mother and father were Swiss German, and that was his first language. And uh, I learned a little of it, but not the kind I shouldn't <laughs> speak. <laughs> My mother put an end to that. <laughs> I can curse beautifully. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and call people horrible names, but other than that. <laughs> um, but I've always been intuitive. Um, one thing habit or I have is if I think of someone without trying to, they pop into my mind within two weeks, I either hear from them or see them. So I've always been like that, and I can tell when things happen before they happen or as they're happening you, miles away from me. So it's kind of, you know, that's why people say, I'm weird. But um, coming back to Frankfurt, I worked over at uh, the History Center and then worked a lot over at the old state capitol. And I was closing up one day, and uh, I was there by myself. I was turning all the things off, and I heard a noise, and I looked up, and there was a, a shadow person dressed in the era in which the capitol was built, old capitol was built. So I watched it, and then I said, oh, hi. <laughs> That's the way I am. I I'm not afraid of anything like that. And uh, it just kind of disappeared, just kind of faded out. And then, uh, again, the old state capitol. Well, my grandson, it, when he was little, he refused to go in there because he said it was frightening. And I said, why? And he said, the things. So <laughs> I guess he's inherited what I have. My, my younger daughter has, too. And uh, let's see. Oh, I was upstairs and uh, where they have the couch where a lot of the uh, soldiers, when they were here in Frankfurt, bivouacked in the old state capitol. I turned around and looked, and there was the sword of one of the... One of the uh, officers swords on this couch and I, I thought this is weird <laughs> but then I'm the one that saw it so it's not that weird <laughs> but uh, I can walk into a house here in Frankfurt and uh, I walked into my daughter's house they live over on Capitol Avenue and I said you know this is a happy house this is don't worry about it you know of course it has that jagged front hall the way they used to build them so the ghost would not you know the old st story but the house we moved in uh when we first moved here from lexington i hated that house because there was well it actually they didn't exist but they were blood stains on the walls in the kitchen and it blood used to run down the front <laughs> the front door on the inside of the house. And I've always kind of been afraid of, <laughs> you know. Have you looked up the history of the house? Do what? Have you looked up the history of the house? Not that one. I mean, it was built in the 50s, you know. But, you know, being in Frankfurt, it could have been hoodlums. <laughs> it was in the county, you know. But uh, now the house I owned down here, off of Home Street is uh, 112 years old, or more now. I mean, it was built in 1912. <laughs> but uh, occasionally, I would smell a smoke, you know, like a cigar smoke or something like that. I don't smoke. I don't allow cigarettes, pipes. And it, well, when I was in college, I smoked a, a lady's pipe. But uh, other than that, I don't allow that kind of stuff in my house. And I always thought that was kind of interesting, whether it was my father who smoked uh, cigars or whether 
when I also smelled um, cigarette smoke, and my late husband smoked. So I said, I don't want to talk to any one, either one of those. <laughs> they can just go away. <laughs> I've had it with them. <laughs> but uh, I can walk into a house and tell whether it's a happy house or whether it's had horrible things happen. I just didn't get those feelings. And uh, <clears throat> my daughter said one time when she was little, she said, Mom, would you tell that little girl not to rock, wake me up in the middle of the night? in that rocking chair, which I have now in my living room. And she saw a ghost. It was a little girl. So uh, we've, I've had a history of that. So I have to ask, what about fear? Do you have any feelings, any thoughts? Um, occasionally, I, don't, I, I feel like somebody's coming up and down the, the uh, elevator. And if the door opens and those and nobody's on there, I'd say hi, you know. <laughs> uh, occasionally, I'll hear a noise, but not much. It's it's not. Gobel's not wandering around. Oh no, uh-uh. <laughs> no. That's good. But do you have a good feeling? Yes, I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. It's really. Um, at first, when I heard that it was being renovated, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> ghosts are not going to like this. <laughs> but I haven't felt any negative feelings. I felt nothing but good feelings since it's been redone. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're happy that we redid it. <laughs> Maybe. I will say I do say goodbye to one every day when I leave. Because I'm not going to last one out. So yeah. When you're coming out of the restroom. <laughs> I'll, I'll be walking past and I, I'll be thinking about something and I'll forget that they're there. Yeah. And I'll be walking down the hallway and it's just like, <gasps> I know, I know. And it don't, doesn't make any difference how many times you've passed it. It still grabs you, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And I don't ever use this restroom, but the few times that I do, I really, I jump. I mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't normally do that, but. They're. So well done. <laughs> they, <laughs> are. they are. I mean, they're they're really well done mannequins. So that's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> selling point, really. Uh huh. Really is. A lot of children are afraid of it. Well, who can I know it. My little niece or granddaughter is afraid of that figure. She came out of the bathroom the last time we were it was opened, and she started screaming. <laughs> But the first time I did it, I went, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> you know, your grandkids ever said anything? Like, did they inherit the gift? Um, not, my do- not my youngest daughters that I noticed. Um, my 18-year-old grandson, you know, he's a typical teenager. He, you know, went brain dead at 12. <laughs> But in uh, her little girl, my, the little bitty one, she, she has an 18-year-old and a 6-year-old. And uh, no, she doesn't talk to anyone. No, I used to, but, you know. <laughs> I still do, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was little, I, I had all kinds of fun. Really? <laughs> my mother, was, what's funny, she said, you spend too much time by yourself and go outside and I said I used to tell her that I couldn't my friends couldn't go outside (laughs) really My, when my mother passed away, this is my adoptive mother, but it's my mother. She's the one that put up with my BS. And uh, so that's my mother. <laughs> but when she passed away, she didn't leave me for a while because I was upset about some guy, <laughs> you know, some insane thing. 
And uh, I can remember one time I was really upset, and she was on my couch, and I just sat down on the floor next to her and put my head in her lap and cried. And it was kind of like, that's all right. You know, she kind of said it was all right. And then when I finally got myself together, I told her she could go. I gave her permission to leave. So she's never been back. Yeah, but I still have people that are, I know that have passed away that come back to me all the time. Do you tell them, like, go do your own thing, leave me alone, and they still come back? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're the, the people that are just really weird <laughs> are hard to get along with. Um, one of my friends here in Frankfurt uh, was a, a quad quadriplegic and uh, he had an attachment to me so much so that when he passed away he kept coming to me in my dreams and bothering me and uh, when I talked to someone here in town that has ESP um, she said that don't worry about it you know he'll leave once you're tired of him (laughs) and he did and then my sister, she said my, my sister, who's passed away, would come to visit me whenever, she, whenever I hear a train. So every time I hear a train go past here, I say, hey, Susan. <laughs> no way. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Did your sister have an affinity for trains? Well, in a way, because my, uh, we used to spend the summers on a f- on my aunt and uncle's farm in Lebanon on the road to uh, uh, right outside of Lebanon and he was an engineer on a train and lost his leg in a, in a train wreck and so uh, <laughs> we used to go there all the time and we used to love to listen to the trains it would put us to sleep at night it's just a smoothing feeling and she said that was the most happiest she'd ever been in her life was going to the farm and staying on the farm, me locking, locking her in the hen house and in the outhouse. But <laughs> like a good sister. Oh, yes, yes. And she got even believe me. And uh, anyway, that train, I think, was, is what keys it because it was so, so quiet and so soothing that that's where the train comes from. And I've always had trains, you know. I mean, a room this size full of train. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was a tomboy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I H.O. Gage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so neat. Yeah, and uh, I would much rather have played with that than do my homework. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did silly things when I was little, like, they put me, I had clowns on my wallpaper. Mom would put me to, to take my nap, and she would come in, and I had driven, had dri- drawn balloons in all <laughs> the clowns' hands. <laughs> uh, the convent school in Wisconsin. Uh, I was asleep and woke up in the middle of a nap, not, uh, nap and my, I dreamt that my dog had been hit. My dad called me that night and told me my dog had been hit in the afternoon. See, I have those things that happen. And um, yeah, so if you don't mind to just start by introducing yourself, however you would like to be known. I'm Patty Peevler. I'm a lifelong resident of Frankfurt, uh, of Native parents and Native grandparents. So uh, Frankfurt is my home and always has been and probably always will be. I am talking this morning about the cemetery because I am uh, right now the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Frankfurt Cemetery. And of course, it's a very beautiful place and a wonderful spot for people to come to Frankfurt and see just how pretty the city is. We have a marvelous view 
of the state capitol and South Frankfurt. And when you stand uh, close to Rebecca and Daniel Boone's graves, you can just see all over, and it's it's really pretty. It's it's stunning. Do you mind to uh, share a little bit of background about the cemetery? Well, the cemetery um, is the third cemetery uh, that we know of uh, in Frankfurt. Uh, the the other two were private, and um, they filled up rather quickly, uh, particularly the one that's out on Thornhill. And so a group of businessmen, including Orlando Brown uh, and Mason Brown, uh, whose father was, of course, John Brown, the Liberty Hall guy. Um, Mason Brown had gone to Boston, and he had seen Mount Auburn, which is called a garden cemetery, and he came back to Frankfurt, got his buddies together, and said, listen, this is what Frankfurt needs. So they uh, they formed a committee, and in 1844, the legislature uh, chartered the cemetery. It is privately owned. It is owned by the lot holders and is governed by a board. Um, in in the meantime, Mason and his friends thought, I, I really didn't know that marketing was a thing in the 1800s, but they decided that it would be wonderful to have a celebrity buried there. And they hit upon Daniel Boone. Of course, Boone had had bad times in Kentucky and left to go to Missouri, saying at one time he never wanted to see Kentucky again. But both Daniel and Rebecca had died, um, and they were buried in uh, a relative's cemetery at Marthasville, Missouri. And so... Several of the men, including Philip Swaggart, who was the first president of Farmers Bank, well, second president of Farmers Bank, you know, all really uh, movers and shakers of the time, they went out to to Missouri to see Daniel Morgan Boone, who was um, the the youngest of the Boone children, and he didn't seem to have a problem with moving them, so. Uh, I don't know who knew where they were buried because there were not any stones. But the Frankfurt people got somebody to dig up what they thought were Daniel and Rebecca. And they um, put them on a boat and started down uh, the river and to, well, the, the Mississippi, and then they went on the Ohio, and then they went up the Kentucky River, and they got to Frankfurt, and they put them in the old capital. So uh, at the appointed day, they had a funeral for them, and it was uh, they were the first people buried there, and they were buried on, on, on a cliff, and it, of course, is very beautiful. And supposedly 20,000 people came. Now, Frankfurt at that time um, probably had about 2,000 people, <laughs> maybe 3,000. So people came from all over, and um, there were bands and speeches and marching and all of that, and I understand it was in the summer, and it was very hot, but they all managed to make it up the hill, and bury Daniel and Rebecca. So that that was the first big deal at the Frankfurt Cemetery. And then, I guess, at the beginning of 1845, they began to bury Frankfurt people there. And I, I cannot remember the first person buried there, the man, but the first woman there was Elizabeth Love. And she uh, and her husband, Major Love, owned the Love Tavern, which they uh, were very prominent. And the legislature met at the Love Tavern before the first uh, capital was built. And Elizabeth Love has another claim to fame. She and Margareta Mason Brown 
were unhappy that there was no Sunday school for children in Frankfurt. And so they, when the weather permitted, they would meet under the big beech tree uh, at Liberty Hall and give Bible stories and that kind of thing. So she was quite a, a, a lovely woman, and she was the first woman buried there. Her son, uh, James Y. Love, had an interesting life. When he was 12, he went to be a, a, a drummer boy with the Army, and he wrote her some very dear uh, letters, which the Filson Club in Louisville has. And he uh, bought uh, 10 lots at the cemetery, and they were $10 apiece. And, and when Mrs. Love died, she was buried there. But subsequent to that, James Y. Love moved to Louisville, and he and his children are all buried at Cave Hill, another very beautiful cemetery. So um, Elizabeth Love is there by herself, but of course surrounded by lots and lots of Frankfurt people, and her uh, stone was fairly small, and it's the kind that you hit it with the mower or the wind knocks it over or something. And our crew at the cemetery has fixed it. You can you can tell that it's been fixed, but she is enough of a Frankfurt celebrity that we want, we want her to have an upright monument. So that's the Frankfurt Cemetery. Um, it has been uh, early on the legislature wanted it to be the resting place for governors and senators and those those folks and so they um they bought a little part of it which we call the state lot and some some dignitaries are buried there but the cemetery deeded to the state uh a what's called the state mound and it was the to be the final resting place for soldiers from Kentucky from every war and and it started because so many uh Kentuckians had been killed in the Mexican war and in 1850 um the state contracted with a man named Robert Larnitz, who was considered to be the finest uh, public uh, sculpture of in marble. And he designed a beautiful, very tall obelisk, which was to have the names of, of, of the people and the battle where they fell. Of course, over the years, it didn't get done a lot of times, but then... Uh, you know, we started having big wars like the Civil War and the Spanish-American War and, and World War One, and, and so the practice of, of putting people from every war there has, in essence, stopped because there just isn't enough room. But there are lots of um, men, including Henry Clay Jr., who fell at Buena Vista, and a, a, a lot of different people, including some people from the River Raisin Massacre, which occurred in 18, the War of 1812. And unfortunately, they were, it was not marked where they were buried. And over the years, a sidewalk got put over them. But the University of Kentucky did extensive work um, in the 90s. And they found where they were buried and, and, and redid the 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 walkway. So now they're they, they know where they are and, and know of course we don't know who they are because um they were first left on the battlefield, then they were then they were um buried in uh Michigan and then they were buried in Covington, and then they were buried in Frankfurt. So, um, 
on the state mound, um, the the statue obelisk has a very beautiful um, statue of victory uh, on the top of it. And one of the men that's buried there is um, Presley O'Bannon. And the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean were really harassing uh, naval ships and uh, mostly merchant ships. And so somebody said, listen, we got to go teach those guys a lesson. So they, they sailed over with Marines on, on the boats and they captured the Barbary pirates and the king of, of uh, Tripoli, uh, the king in Tripoli, was so thrilled that he gave Presley and several other of the officers uh, scimitar swords. And the Marines, some Marines still carry a scimitar sword. And if you remember the Marines hymn, it says, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Well, that was the first time that an American flag was um, put on foreign soil. And Presley was one of the men that did it. And when he died, he was buried in Shelby County and the state legislature got him and put him at the beginning of um, right at at the well the point of the of the state mound. Now at the other end of the state mound is a wonderful monument to Richard Minner Johnson. Richard Minner Johnson was Buchanan's vice president, but he is he probably though he was a career politician. He probably got to be the vice president because his claim to fame is that he killed Tecumseh. Um, Tecumseh, you will remember, uh, wanted to unite uh, native tribes so that they could successfully um, keep settlers from from Ohio and, and, and to lesser extent Kentucky because Kentucky was pretty much already settled but there is a, a bas relief of uh, of Richard Minner Johnson um, slaying Tecumseh but Richard Minner Johnson has lost his head and uh, so he is the headless a vice president may be slaying one of the most uh, celebrated Native Americans. But Richard Minner Johnson is there. And one other thing I'll say about the state mound, there is a, a, a man from Frankfurt. Uh, his name is Theodore O'Hara. His father was Keen O'Hara, who he ran several schools. Schools were, of course, private back then but Theodore O'Hara was a newspaper man and he fought in the the Mexican War and he was of course um, had, had lost many friends and in, in the war and sometime later he wrote a poem called the bivouac of the dead and when I was a youngster every every school child in Franklin County learned that and I can still remember a little bit of it. But anyway, it's called The Bivouac of the Dead. And um, Theodore O'Hara uh, talks about how the muffled drums uh, said, roll has beat the soldier's last tattoo. And, and he's, you know, he's saying that now they're at peace because they're dead. Um, it's, it's a very long poem. Um, and the thing I want to say is that even though Theodore O'Hara fought for the confederacy that poem is at almost every federal cemetery in the united states so theodore uh is buried in the frank frankfurt cemetery he um left kentucky and and went south and was a newspaper man for a time but um he we certainly claim him as a frankfurt person so 
you know, I love hearing about all these amazing, famous, deceased people yeah. that we have here. And it fits this podcast so well. Mm-hmm. This is a poor transition. I apologize. <laughs> However, thinking about the uh, gentleman who lost his head mm-hmm. reminds me uh. of purported <laughs> bizarre events occurring at the cemetery as well. Do you mind to talk a little about oh, those? Of course. First, I want to say that I I have been in the cemetery when it's gathering dark and it is the most peaceful place you will ever be. Uh, But there are a couple of things that have happened along the way that are interesting. One I just learned about a few few days ago. Um, Our head groundskeeper said to me, we had somebody come up here looking for vampires. And and he was mowing and they stopped and he got off and went over to the car to talk to them. And it was two women and they said, where is the vampire? And he said, we don't have any vampires here. So so she was quite adamant that someone had told her that there was a vampire. Of course, it was the middle of the day, so he would be sleeping anyway if we had a vampire. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was interesting that any that, that somebody would would think that we had vampires. But I will tell you um, that we have a a vault that was um, damaged by vandals, I'll call them. I wish I had them. I'd give them a swift kick. They uh, broke into a vault and took two skulls. And we, this was in the 70s, and you know, the police, I mean, what do you do? So um, someone decided that they wanted the skulls for a satanic ritual. That seems pretty ooky to me. But anyway, that that was um, one of the, um, well, I think it was really one of the saddest things because we don't want to have to have a, an eight-foot-high fence blocking the the view of, of the river and, and the capital and all of that. So most of the cemetery is uh, the uh, on Glens Creek Road is um, there's a chain-link fence. And across the back, there's a chain-link fence. Um Many cemeteries have have fences, some ornamental. I know there's one in Louisville that I passed by, and it has razor wire at the top. So they really they it it, it is a problem for people wanting to have a little fun to go in at night and that kind of thing. But we have not really ever had a problem with that because our groundskeeper lives in a house at the front uh and he before he closes the gates at night he drives through and takes his dog with him and his dog goes back and forth back and forth and back and forth and sees every bit of of what's going on so anyway those are two things but the most fun thing that i think is um Two of the women that worked in the office um, thought that sometimes they were not alone. And one uh, afternoon, one of the ladies heard someone whistling in the back office. And of course, she goes back there and, you know, there's nothing there. And then another time, she's typing and and really intent on what she's doing and she knows somebody's behind her so she turns around and of course there's nobody there so uh, along the way they start calling their spirit Clarence and Clarence um will sometimes move things uh mostly we have lots of piles of records and things. And sometimes Clarence will move things. Well, well, one day, one of the women ha- had lost a file and, and she was just in a panic. Uh, 
because she couldn't find it and she didn't know what had happened to it. So before she left in the afternoon, she said, now, Clarence, I really need that file. I hope you can find it for me. And in the morning, it was on the top of the pile. So she loves Clarence because he helped her out. The rest of the story is long ago when um, there would be funerals at, at the cemetery, the men would don white coveralls, um, you know, sign of respect, clean, all of that. So we have things stored in, in, in the, it's not really an attic, more of the ceiling of the office. Um, you know, you, you end up with so many things that you probably don't want to throw away, but you really don't have a lot of space for. So we have put things up there along the way. And so, uh, one of our crew was, was up there, um, looking for something. I think maybe it, it was, uh, um, Christmas decorations or something. They were going to put a little tree out and he, he, he found a bunch of these white, coveralls from you know maybe the 20s or 30s certainly a long time ago so he just picked one up and and brought it down to show the 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 women who worked there look at what I found this is what they evidently they used to you know wear uh, to be respectful and when they turned it around the name on the back was Clarence and, and neither of those women had known about a Clarence that worked at the cemetery, but he did, and uh, he's um, most helpful, and we're we're glad that he's here, and we hope that uh, we we do right by him. Uh, sometimes the office gets a little piled up with things, and maybe he's just I don't know trying to clean it up or something. I love that because I think so many people have a perception of a cemetery as a scary yeah, kind of dark yeah. place. But, you know, other than this satanic ritual, yeah. it doesn't seem like there's really any incidents of that. No, there isn't. And like I say, I've been up there at night. Um, a couple of years we had um, hayrides, a, a ghost uh, event, and we had people to uh, play uh, various, various Frankfurt people and they would step out from behind the the stone and, and, and tell a little bit about themselves. And, and so, I mean, it was full dark when we were up there and it's, it's peaceful. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not scary, mainly because it doesn't look like the, the churchyard with the, the leaning, uh, moss covered, you know. Uh, now we do have some moss covered and um, monuments, but it's a very peaceful place, and it is a very restful place. We have people who walk up there every day. We have we had a over the weekend um, the participants in the half marathon that the uh, history center put on they run they run through the cemetery and they they run in silence and i don't know whether they had it this year or not but in years past they've had a bugler to do taps while they were up there so i i don't feel like that it's disrespectful for people to to come up there and, and walk around i would say if you want something to do on a beautiful afternoon uh, go and 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 read the the monuments um in in section f um it belonged to a uh, good shepherd church for a number of years and it is consecrated ground and so uh the catholic faithful that that passed on were buried there and the man at the time who had Lynch, who was mr lynch from lynch monuments um, was of Irish descent, and he knew the Celtic symbols of vines and different kinds of flowers and things. And if you walk through that section, you will see a lot of the people have put where they're from in Ireland because they left, they knew they would never be back. 
but they will it'll say native of ireland or native of county cork or or whatever and and i find that to be um i i think i think it's heartbreaking because they knew they had to leave but yet it was always in their heart mm-hmm. um one other thing i'll i'll say uh about the cemetery most of the stones are are stone we have one uh, that is metal one monument that is metal it's very small it's the monument for a three-year-old boy and um, I, I think for a while uh, metal monuments you know were a thing but they evidently did not catch on too much in Frankfurt but um, this um, young man was um, one of the Buckley family and the Buckleys um, lived um, outside of Millville in, in actually in Woodford County and the Buckleys gave a large and very beautiful farm to the Audubon Society so that uh, I, I always think of what good people they must have been to to leave their farm for a bird sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So, before we say goodbye, yes, do you mind to share with the audience how they can get involved with a Frankfurt Cemetery if they would like to be? Absolutely. Um, the The cemetery um, office is open um, from eight to four. Uh, five days a week, um, our our office manager does, because she's a one-woman office, does go uh, to lunch at 11. But we are always looking for people who might be interested in doing um, a, a walkabout, a, a tour. Um, somebody who's interested in Frankfurt history could, could certainly pick that up. Uh, we often uh, would benefit from extra funds um we lose five to seven trees a year and it's because the cemetery is up so high when storms blow through it it just devastates big old trees and um about 15 years ago we had what's called a straight line wind come up um come up out uh, over the river and of course i think the river uh, also um is is uh, plays a part in how the winds are and and that kind of thing but anyway we so we we would like for people to um give us a tree you know have us plant a tree for them um we we love to have visitors. Um, uh, two things I will say: don't park on the grass, even even though you know you think you're being good by scooting over, so that somebody can get by you. There are many people buried in the cemetery who have no monument, and of course, at first, when people were coming in buggies and on horseback, the roads were not very wide, and over the years, they've been widened. And so there are, right next to the road, there there are the the remains of of people, and the and the other thing is, unfortunately, and I and I still think this is something I wish we could work on. We cannot have campers, buses, anything very big in the cemetery because they cannot make the turns, and they hit the the low branches of our big old trees so it keeps um a a, a tour bus they can come and park in our parking lot but the hill is pretty steep now we when we have um, children come in school buses they jump off and run up the hill and the teachers are lagging behind but um we 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 have on occasion um, said, you know, we could have some golf carts or something like that, and and we do have a golf cart. So if you you know if you're if you're coming in a an RV and you really want to see the cemetery, 
uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that Sarah would uh, would drive you at least at least up to Boone because it is certainly worth seeing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Patty. This was great. You're welcome. Thank you for taking the time out of your Wednesday to join us for this episode of Kentucky Deceased. Later this week, we're going to publish another episode that is going to include written material, written ghost stories by two very wonderful Frankfurt individuals. I also want to put at the end here a really exciting and fantastic announcement. If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, then I am really pleased to share with you that we actually have an update on this case that I shared, as well as some more information, some more context, and some more Ouija board related encounters. I'm going to be working on that episode and going to be releasing a bonus episode with that updated material probably next week. And if not, then definitely the week after. I'll give you more updates as I myself know more too. I want to give my deepest and most heartfelt, sincerest thanks to Harrison Haskin Wagner, who read the first story for us today, which is a news article, again, that was published in the 1960s out in eastern Kentucky, but was found in a file relating to Frankfurt. So I thought it would be fun to share. Next, I want to thank Sally McNichols, who is one of our front desk staff here, for her wonderful and amazing stories of her series of bizarre and fantastic occurrences here in town. And finally, thank you so much to Patty Peebler, who is another one of our wonderful front desk staffers, who shared with us some of the Frankfurt Cemetery history, legacy, and important stories from that cemetery. If you haven't been up there, I cannot encourage you enough. Patty talked about the beautiful views of Frankfurt from the cemetery, and it's true. Every time I bring visitors in from out of town and every time I visit, you know, visited Frankfurt before I moved here, I would always and will always take them to the cemetery to see the wonderful and gorgeous overlook views there. Can't recommend it enough. Absolutely, you should stop by. So thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to seeing you on Friday.